from recruiting and consulting firm RiderFlex. I'm your host, Steve Urban, and here is your RiderFlex podcast episode of the day. All right, you ready to rock and roll? Let's go. Dan Burkall on the RiderFlex podcast. Welcome, Dan. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm glad glad uh, to have you. You're a serial entrepreneur. We can learn lots from you. You've been through this several times. Hell, I think you started your first company when you were still in college, if I if I read it right, something like that. <laughs> so you've been uh, you've been doing this for a while. But before we get into the business stuff, just how about Dan the person? Maybe some personal, early family stuff, parents, where you grew up, siblings, anything like that you want to share. Yeah, sure. So I uh, grew up in Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, live in Denver now, so didn't didn't travel too far. Made a pit stop uh, in Boulder for college. So kind of have done the triangle, so to speak. Um, you know, pretty pretty typical upbringing. I uh, I have a brother who's younger than me, a um, couple years, three years younger, and uh, you know we did what kids do, I guess boys do. We played baseball and and uh you know got got in a little bit of trouble not too much trouble um and uh you know uh for me though the kind of upbringing was really shaped by kind of in the middle school or junior high school years um as you know i started to see computers in the library and 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 kind of started getting kind of captivated by that and so maybe maybe uh uh not a coincidence that you know focus on playing baseball in the summer started to kind of wane a little bit and focus on tinkering with computers started to kind of increase maybe not by the same rate that probably went up uh, a lot uh, in terms of in terms of all that um, you mentioned the uh, um, the first business which I was actually in a senior in high school um, that wasn't even really the first I mean I was I think I was trying to get paid to design web pages for people probably when I was still in middle school, junior high. Um, <laughs> I think I was uh, uh, doing a little bit of consulting in like Linux and Unix administration kind of in that general time frame. And so kind of early on, I guess I was always trying to do something 8-bit entrepreneurial with these skills that I had developed sort of naturally um, just because it was my curiosity kind of taking me and in, in open, opening these these doors uh, these kind of inquisitive doors. Were your parents in computers? Were they entrepreneurs? What was the what was the tie there? Not at all. Um, I mean, the, the the only tie is that they they gave me the room to to learn it, and not to nice. be like, hey, you're, you know, they would think I was probably on the dial up modem too much and some of that, but um, they weren't. I mean, we had a home computer by the time I was uh, probably in sixth or seventh grade um okay. windows okay. 3.1 and um but no they they were they were, were they were logging into aol at the same time you know i was but i was developing technical skills and they were just you know connecting the way most normal people use the internet especially in the, the early days so did your um, dad did your dad know you were collecting cash from people to build websites <laughs> um yeah, probably a little bit. I mean, I don't think that was all that successful. I think maybe I did one project, and I okay. think they knew about that project. But um, okay, uh, cool. yeah, they knew a bit about that. But I, but both both my both my parents have worked for themselves at periods of time. Nothing in technical fields, but okay. um, I think they've always they've been a bit entrepreneurial, and they're just wanting to do things and kind of be their own boss. Kind of mindset has been something that I must have must have rubbed off. Yeah, it must have it must have been a seed in there somewhere. Okay, so you were doing stuff early on, even back to middle school, high school, and then uh, walk us into when you were uh, in Boulder in school. Did you? I mean, the whole time were you thinking I'm gonna I'm gonna start my own business? Like I'm I'm not gonna work for anybody else. Was that the plan, or you were still tinkering? Walk me through some of those early days. So, so the first real company, uh, I was the co-founder. It was in kind of this Linux, we were this kind of Linux software company, uh, right as open source was, you know, kind of becoming a thing and people were starting to use it for building internet servers and hosting websites. And mm -hmm. 
so that was so I was 17 in my senior year of high school as that was getting off the ground. And so when I went to CU, I was still doing that kind of part time or sometimes it would okay. burst to kind of full time. And so in those first year or two at CU, I, um, uh, you know, in those giant uh, lecture halls of just the kind of standard subjects that, you know, you had to take. Um, I was falling asleep in class and my grades were not particularly good those first two years just because I was a working pretty hard outside of school. Um, and I think B, um, I wasn't really excited about, you know, the humanities class that I was attending, let's say. Um, I remember, and that was the, the large lecture halls where if you fall asleep, nobody really notices. I remember this one time that I fell asleep in ancient philosophy and it was like a 15 person class. And that was pretty embarrassing because in high school, I never, I never was the kid that fell asleep in class, but, uh, you know, just fast forward a few years and give me some, some boring subjects and boom, I'm, I'm out. Meanwhile, um, we got, were you guys making money too? I mean, you were building, the, were you actually, I mean, was it profitable? Was it paying you like yeah, to spend yeah, paying me? Yeah, it was, it was paying me to, you know, partially help go to school. You know, okay. my parents were helping too, and but it helped. Cool. It helped with that, and um, but it wasn't a lot of money. And the company yeah. was always sort of, you know, we'd release a new version of the software. We'd you know see a little spike in sales, then that spike would go away, and then there was a lot of pressure to build the next release to kind of see another spike. And so it was a volatile business for sure. Um, we had some pretty in interesting clients. We had a lot of you know U.S government agencies like the national laboratories and you know nasa and some of the defense uh, uh or some of the uh, branches of the military so we had some pretty good customers but it wasn't like it was you know printing printing money yeah okay um, all right but 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 i think what it was though is that because of that experience doing that while in school those for a few years um i was also uh trying to avoid just doing even more programming, even more technology in school. So this two years in, I was kind of adrift and I was thinking about even going somewhere else. I just wasn't sure oh, what really? to do. And um, and then I applied, I decided to apply to the business school uh, and um, didn't think I was gonna get accepted because my GPA wasn't that great. I mean, I had almost a, I didn't have a 4.0 in high school, but it was real close. Okay. Um, and, but by college it was, um, my, it was in the first two years, the grades were not particularly good. So I did not think they'd accept me with that kind of transfer into the business school just because they had a minimum floor because they had a lot of demand. Um, but they did. And then it really turned everything around for me because much smaller class sizes, you know, kind of a, a much, much closer knit group of people that were kind of like minded, entrepreneurial and mindset and and so on. So the last two years at CU were fantastic and not, had nothing to do with computers at all, which I think is what I needed. I was looking for that contrast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very good. OK, very good. All right. And so after school, at some point, you guys, what, you, you stopped this business and uh, Apple, uh, the, the opportunity for you to go to be an employee with Apple kind of surfaces? How does that happen? So the business continued and I just decided I was, I needed to no longer be part of it because I had just, I'd been part of it since I was 17 and I didn't know anything else. Okay. Um, so it, it was, you know, I would say it was, it was not that it was uh, struggling per se. It was just kind of a, it wasn't going, it would kind of, to me, wasn't feel, feel like it was going anywhere. It actually went on to do some bigger things after I was no longer there and okay. um, ended up getting acquired. So that was, that was good. Um, but I just needed something that was a change of pace and especially spending, you know, a lot of hours in code and in kind of the terminal. Um, I just really wanted something different. So I started out, I put through in an application to, to Apple retail store down down in denver and um and i just w literally wanted something just anything yeah. um i liked apple because our company had been apple was a partner of ours and i'd gotten to see you know i'd been able to go to some of the apple keynotes uh, because of the mm -hmm. linux company and so there was already some exposure i just liked i liked what was going on so but that retail you know job that started out part-time turned into a corporate job um had a home office here in denver um, you know, was involved in, um, you know, rollout and new initiatives and sort of store operations for a part of the country uh, relative to the retail expansion that was going on. 
Okay, good experience for you. And then uh, talk to me about you deciding to leave there and do Push.io, I guess, uh, was the next company you founded or where you were a co-founder. So it was actually Double Encore was the next one. And oh, what it was oh, is that, yeah, they're, they're, they're related. So, um, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm at Apple. The iPhone launches in 2007, right? I had a real sense that it was going to change everything, um, both from using the device, you know, as an employee that in that first year of launch, it was still pretty expensive. It was only on AT&T, edge networking, but huge potential and employees got one. So I had an iPhone that first year and um, I just knew it was going to be, you know, a, a success in the end. And especially just this idea that you could run real software on this, not little web apps or anything. Yeah. It's like this was going to exactly. once you could in and, and that first year, you couldn't actually run real software. It was web apps, yeah. but you just could see the writing on the wall. So that next year, 2008, they launched the App Store and um, by that, I, I I had a sense that the App Store was coming, um, not from any proprietary, you know, notion, but just by right. following what yeah. was was happening. So, um, you know, I just I just looked at it and I said, you know, I think there's going to be an opportunity here because uh, if they roll something out where you can make apps and distribute them on an App Store, they're going to use all the Apple technology. And, and Apple had this kind of esoteric programming language, Objective-C, which nobody on the planet knew unless you happen to be a Mac programmer. There wasn't very many Mac programmers. So my sense was, you know, if a company was going to want to build one of these applications, um, how are they going to do it? How, who are they going to, there's like nobody to recruit in those early days. Mm -hmm. So they're going to need to be able to hire an engineering firm or a kind of agency to be able to build um, build these yep. apps that I was convinced yep. they would want to build. And so that was with Double Encores. We built basically one of the world's first app development agencies built around building iPhone apps. Um, and, and in that first little period of time, by the way, um, there there weren't a lot of agencies because all the people that were early adopters like me, they were like building a little game or building the fart app, right? And, and I had just skipped all that and just went straight to what is the commercial opportunity here? And you did that by yourself. You were the founder there of that company, and you what? You spent six years building that. How how big was it? How many so, employees? So it started. It was just me. Uh, we got our first project in two thousand eight, and kind of expanded to a couple of engineers. I think the engineers started out, and they were contractors. And then in that kind of first year, I was able to bring them on the payroll. Um, but by the time it got acquired by WPP, it was north of 50 employees, mostly based in Denver with a satellite office um, in Atlanta, Georgia. Wow, congratulations. Successful exit for you, up to 50 employees. Were you still the majority uh, shareholder when it was acquired? So, I was a large shareholder. So what had happened is that um, after around 25 employees, mm -hmm. then the question, I was starting to build Push.io at the same time and we can talk about that. Okay. Um, but but so what happened was, is that running two businesses at the same time is really challenging. <laughs> running one and business, running one business as a CEO is challenging. <laughs> so exactly, and, and they were com very complimentary. Push.io was a, a cloud service for push notifications for mobile apps. So. A lot of our Double Encore clients ended up using Push.io as the engine to send push notifications. So very complimentary, but not, but not the same business. And two, two separate businesses. That one had another co-founder and a kind of different team and the whole the whole thing. So there was a point where both of them were doing pretty well. And but I felt as a as the as a human back to the back to me as a person is that I wasn't scaling to be able to be 100% plus at either business. I felt like I was giving, you know, everything I could give, but wasn't operating great at, at, at either. So what I, Push.io looked like it was the one that had, you know, this uh, more, I don't want to call it upside because that's not exactly fair, um, but it, it felt like it's something that, that, that needed more of my attention and needed to be nurtured to kind of get to that next level. Whereas Double Encore just kind of had hit a, a good, um, steady rate. But then the question is, where could it go? And so what I did was I identified here locally, um, a gentleman that I knew that had a similar company, uh, 
focused on not iPhone. They did a little bit of iPhone, but it was they had built their reputation more around the Android ecosystem. And he had built a company that had maybe it was consulting. Maybe he had a few, few, a little bit fewer in terms of number of employees, but real complementary, right? We were iPhone focused. He was Android focused. Similar businesses, similar business models. Um, and but this was somebody I knew and trusted. So I approached him and said, "Hey, you know, what if what what would it look like if we would merge these two companies?" Uh-huh. And one of the benefits to that was it wasn't just him. He had a COO that was really dialed in from an operations and kind of financial mm-hmm. kind of uh, execution perspective. Um, so by doing that merger, what I, what happened was, A, our team doubled overnight. That was good for some of our customers that wanted to be able to scale with us. But mm-hmm. like we had some big customers that were where we didn't have necessarily enough capacity. So that was an interesting win is that all of a sudden we had more capacity. But the second thing is that it allowed me to sort of elevate more strategically. So I became the chairman of the board. I I would stay involved in the business from a strategic perspective, kind of once a week deep dive in the business. Uh, But otherwise, Ben started running day to day, the company day to day, which really was around, you know, sales. The CEO of an agency is really the salesperson. And then the COO who came in was really the person dealing with recruiting, the yep. books, and all of that. And so what happened was in that ensuing year, um, everything got much more dialed in from a ops perspective. Profitability went up, you know, revenue or uh, um, um, even revenue went up. Every, all the metrics w- looked great after we did the deal and operated for a little while. Meanwhile, I could go focus on this other company that needed some attention too, uh, and just wasn't as mature. Meanwhile, though, because all those metrics started to look great, um, it was a, it was a um, compelling pitch to a, an acquirer like WPP uh, because everything was very dialed in, great customer list, great team, you know, real strong reputation, et cetera. Did you purposely go on a road show to pitch it or you just started getting knocks on the door? For that company, we did a we did a road show because um, we knew we were in a strong position to potentially okay. shop it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Very good. You, you did, did you just happen to get both of them acquired in the same year in 2014? Yeah, nuts, huh? Right? I mean, seriously, <laughs> to go through both of those, uh, did it just kind of happen that way or that was the plan? It just kind of happened that way. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, you always hope for hope for the you know nice outcomes, but I've always, at least so far in in the career to date, it's just that you know I work on things I want to work on or that I'm pulled into and 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 drawn to, and and then you know you end up building its team, and now you're responsible for this team, and so you feel a lot of kind of um, the 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 burden of leadership to sort of take it somewhere and not just for yourself, but for the people around you. And, and so it just sort of happened. But what was interesting though, is that part of why we started with that company in this discussion, but Push.io actually led on the acquisition side. I had gone over there full time to, instead of, you know, part-time at both, um, in part to go raise some money and to kind of take it to the next level. And that was the plan. So the fact that we sold the company was not really part of the plan because we were looking to scale it. Uh, we had, we had you know good revenue. We want to take it to the next level. We had great customers. We want to take that to the next level. But the the so the acquirer in that case the acquirer knocked on our door, okay. and it just seemed like too too simpatico of a match both from a kind of a personalities perspective, but more importantly what it would mean for the business because we had invested a lot in this engine that was you know, blazing fast at sending push notifications so that some of the big news broadcasters and sports leagues used us as their engine instead of the well-funded competitor down the road. So that was a big win. But um, where we where we failed to you know, kind of grow into was that there was other categories, travel and retail and, you know, e-commerce where blazing fast delivery wasn't the metric of, for success. It was, is there a tool that the marketer can use? Mm. Is, is is it not, it, instead of being something that's great, a great kind of technical solution, is it a solution that kind of the non-technical people on the team can go and use um, to deliver their use cases? And so this company that approached us, they had built a marketing system 
built around travel, retail, e-commerce, built really around email, and they needed a mobile story, and we needed a marketing story. And so it just felt like a perfect match. And so we ended up putting fundraising to kind of plan B and put the acquisition to plan A. So it kind of swapped in the order. After we went through that process, got the transaction closed. Well, by the way, in the middle of, we're about to sign the deal and um, and then they go silent, which is never a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> what happened? They got scared? Well, what, yeah. no, we, we just, you know, they went silent. Uh, we're the sponsor of the deal isn't answering our texts or our phone calls. And it's just like, oh man, we were so close. We were supposed to sign on like December 13th or something. And it just went totally dark. Um, I'm in Europe um, on a trip, just a personal trip, first personal trip in a long time. And I'm thinking if this deal closes, I might be able to fly back uh, in life flat seats. So I was, me and my then uh, uh, fiance were really looking forward to that, but no, didn't happen. Didn't didn't end up happening because things got delayed. And what happened was that um, Oracle had come in and made a $1.5 billion acquisition offer on the company that was in the process of acquiring us. I see. I see. And so we kind of got swept into that acquisition, bundled into that acquisition. And actually, quite frankly, Oracle didn't necessarily want to... Um, they were like, oh, we'll do this little th- this little company. We can deal with that later. But to the to the credit of our acquirer, who had spent you know six months working on the deal, knew that our time had been invested, their time had been invested. It was almost to the finish line. They really insisted that it get done as part of that primary transaction, which was really good on them because they could have just said, hey guys, I'm sorry, this you know big transaction kind of gunked up the works and um, we might have to revisit or which would have killed it. You know, it would have never happened if it was a revisit. Gotcha. Well, c- congratulations on getting both of those deals done in 2014. Now I'm, I'm guessing there was a two year ride along for Oracle and that's why you were over there as a senior director or product manager. They're like, hey, you got to stick around for a couple of years or, how, or did they just recruit you or was it a ride along package on the deal or what happened yeah they 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 uh they they recruit i mean they wanted us so that was that was important um especially because there wasn't a mobile kind of offering to speak of so the idea they didn't want to just buy the technology they wanted to buy the mobile leaders and Mm -hmm. so that's what our team became Um, i was kind of the mobile the head of mobile product on the product side Um, my co-founder joe was the head of mobile sales so he was in kind of the sales organization Um, and then we started to little by little build out an engineering you know pod really around our technology and really um the time was right for me to leave because our technology two years later both in terms of the structure of some earnouts and things um but 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 also more importantly is that we had kind of completed the mission of integrating our technology into the larger product and platform so at that point you know, it, it was it was being managed to kind of day to day with a larger team. They like my need. I was uh, uh, made somewhat obsolete uh, by the okay. fact that it became part of the larger thing. And um, so that, it just seemed uh, like a good time to try something new. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, I mean, after starting both of those other companies and running them as the CEO, having like a supervisor at Oracle probably wasn't fun, I don't guess, was it? <laughs> so no complaints about my boss or my boss's boss. I mean, they're both, both really great. I, I would just say that, you know, it's a much larger organization. And so things yeah. that as a startup, you're able to do just because you like, you decide, for example, um, yep. <laughs> you know, I need this piece of software. Okay. Let's just go plug let's in the credit it. card, you know, <laughs> stuff like that is just a little bit slower. So, right. you know, my, entre- my entrepreneurial side didn't love that now that being said with 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 the perspective of just a little bit of hindsight because it's been a few years now um you know those things drive you nuts a little bit but there's then there's a there's a whole series of other things that um i probably didn't appreciate as much at the time not the least of which was that you know when when your piece of software is being sold on the rate card at oracle a company that's you know just about as big as it gets from a software perspective right um that is pretty pretty cool to see a salesperson you've (laughs) see a salesperson you've never talked to in some other part of the world that sold your piece of software without having any interaction with you um is kind of mind-blowing yeah that's pretty cool yeah that's nice okay so 
congratulations on all of that. So you saw this uh, position at Oracle. You're like, okay, this is this this is probably wrap up time. Did you did you know what you wanted to start next? Did you have an idea? Uh, you know, was that a, or did you meet with a co-founder over some beers, a, a buddy, and say, hey, let's go, let's start? Yeah, walk me through it. <laughs> well, so the company I ended up found co-founding next was Nami. And my co-founder did another year at Oracle. So just to put the timeline in perspective, um, I did. I I decided to do Nami with the same person that I did Push IO with, and he lasted basically basically another year. So I didn't. When I left, I did wasn't sure what I was going to do right away. And I the first thing I did, quite honestly, is I took a sabbatical. That's why. Uh, That's why I'm looking. I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile, and I see the little gap there. I see there's a tiny gap, whatever it is, year and a half or whatever. I was wondering if that's what happened. Yeah, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, no, it's it's what the gap was. Is it was supposed to be a six month sabbatical that, whenever. So what? It's funny. Sometimes people call me now that are thinking about doing the sabbatical. Maybe they've had an exit or something. So I'll get a call. I've been introduced to them through a friend or an investor or something, and. And uh, they'll, they ask me, well, what, what, what's your advice for me as I do think about doing a sabbatical? I'm like, just realize it's not going to be, a sh- uh, if you're saying it's going to be three weeks, it's going to be three months. Are you saying it's going to be six months? It's going to be a year. Just just be aware that it's just, that's what's going to happen. And that's what happened. It just, it grew into something more. And and the, the quite frankly, you know, to, to start, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I just focused on me. I did, it was, and got into some, you know, new hobbies and, you know, tried some new things and, you know, spent some time on fitness, which I hadn't spent a lot of time on running two companies. And so it just, um, the first, if you break it into kind of chunks, the first chunk was really focusing on me. Second chunk was trying some new things. Um, started training Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, which is kind of related to fitness, but different. And then the third thing is, is starting to think about well, what to do next. And then, you know, it's just like hard to choose. So that last little chunk of time was also just probably some decision paralysis around, well, I got to do something. It's now been a year and uh, I got to pull the trigger on something, but what should I pull the trigger on? And we had some idea, you know, we had some industry trends that we had been watching and some things that uh, we were keeping our eyes on. So it wasn't just totally blank slate, but um, still like I, for somebody that, for, for somebody for whom it's been their fourth one, it was awfully hard to just say, okay, now's the moment we're pulling the, the trigger. You would think it would have been second nature. When you got ready to start NAMI, are you single guy now, married, partner, kids? Like, what is it still just you and you can, you can take all kinds of risks or you got a family now? Where are you at personally? Yeah, yeah. So I uh, uh, really, for all of those companies, was in the same relationship. I got okay. married in 2015, so kind of at the tail end of my Oracle tenure, we had been together a long time and then finally decided to get married. And then, um, and then, you know, it's just been us and two cats for a long, long time. Although, um, as of, uh, about six weeks ago, uh, we have a newborn baby girl in the family. So life life has gotten very, I, I have, you know, you think that year and a half sabbatical, uh, is a weird gap in time. I can't believe how much, uh, time alters uh with having a baby around it's just like (laughs) where did the whole day go like right you know what what happened to the night time hours (laughs) so right yeah your first kid you're like oh shit 12 hours just went by and what do we do i can't remember (laughs) it's mayhem Uh, congratulations okay new daughter okay so all right. I was wondering if you were in a relationship during that time. Well, wow, that's that's pretty cool that your wife has been with you through uh, lots of those big moments in your life. And uh, so congrats to you and her and congrats on the baby. All right. So, Nami, let's uh, get, give us the three minute elevator pitch. Go for it. Yeah. So. Back in mobile. Mobile is much more mature than it was when we started Double Encore and then Push I.O. And the ecosystem's been through an evolution. Part of the evolution is that, you know, it started out, people would build an app, give it away for free because it was just a marketing yep. piece. Yep. And then maybe maybe it'd be a paid download, but you can never make money that way, especially for things that aren't really professional packages. But even in mobile, even if it's a really professional package, you can't charge enough because people don't want to spend $100 on a, people, uh, on a mobile app. They'd spend $100 on desktop software, but there's something about mobile that's kind of kept the prices down. Um, 
then the Apple introduced in-app purchases, and so games really started to flourish from a monetization perspective because you keep having to buy the coins and the tokens to keep going in the game. But for all the rest of apps, non-games, um, there was really this problem where people couldn't figure out how to make it sustainable. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the fundamental challenge with that is that the ecosystem has gotten more complex. There's not just phones now, there's tablets and watches and TV, smart TVs and all these things. And so if you wanna put an app, app out there, it's a massive amount of effort now, even though all the tools are easier to use, the programming languages are easier, there's just more you have to target. So just the level of effort and resource requirements is an order of magnitude more now. So what it means is it puts a real onus on monetization has to be um, much more of a central emphasis. Mobile ads is not a really viable option unless you're a very high traffic property. Um, But if you're a high traffic property, why not introduce a subscription tier as well? So that's what's happened is that Apple and Google have really pushed people to adopt subscriptions. uh, pushed app app developers, app publishers, and they provide a lot of the the, the billing layer, right? So the transaction, charging the, the credit card. Um, but as it turns out, um, just charging the credit card isn't building an experience. In order to deliver a subscription-based experience, um, you need subscription management. So you need something that understands, should this user have access to the premium content? You need something that understands, oh, they've canceled but they're still in their current billing term, so they should keep access for a little while, but then as soon as it expires, revoke the access. And so that subscription management piece has been missing, and it's not provided by Apple, by Google, and so on. And so we provide that piece. Why isn't it? Why? Yeah, yeah. why isn't it provided by those big companies? They just didn't want to mess with it? You know, I I, I think it's like what we saw with push notification, where they provided a part of the push notification that was between Apple or Google and the device, that secure connection, Mm -hmm. but they just provide that pipeline. Then there's an API interface where you, the developer, have to communicate with an API that goes to Apple and then they send it to the device. And so the problem is to send a message to an API, you have to have a server. And it turns out people don't want to operate servers, especially if you're, you know, in breaking news or one of these things at, at volume. Um, it's, it's, it's why companies like Twilio exist to send SMS, right? Because nobody wants to stand up their own SMS server. Mm-hmm. Same way, people don't want to stand up their own push server. Same way, people don't want to stand up their own subscription management software um, and write it from scratch. Um, and, it, and it gets very, con- and so why don't they do it? I think it's because in both ecosystems, there's kind of a tendency to, to deliver kind of enough to get the developer going in kind of the simple use case of let's sell a subscription, but Apple, Apple or Google never provide the thing that, that you would need if you want to operate at scale. You need to operate at scale, you need this additional layer. Um, so that's that's one piece of what NAMI is, is just managing subscriptions. And by the way, it gets more complicated if you ship on Apple, ship on Google, ship on a Roku box. Maybe your experience is in all those places. Maybe you sell the subscription in all those places and you as, as the publisher, you need to have one, you want one tool that manages all that. And so you have a single view into your customer base mm-hmm. instead of having a siloed view of just your Apple customer subscribers, a siloed view of just your Google subscribers, right? So not only subscription management on one ecosystem, but kind of a unified view across wherever you're selling. Um, so that's really, really important. And then taking a lesson from what we learned from that push IO experience and then being part of Oracle is that instead of just focusing on the technology of this, kind of the developer implementation, um, we realized, hey, eventually, just like in the push business, marketers are going to want to take a hold of this thing. So how would, do we open up use cases for marketers? And so what we've built is kind of a, a, a browser-based interface where the, where the marketer can adjust the subscription packages and offers and creative and copy and really the, and all the marketing behind the premium subscription can be done from a browser. You push a button. It's live in the app. You don't have to go through app review, um, which slows you down. And so that's been a huge win because people can literally get up and running in, in you know, really minutes. Um, and then the non-technical people on the team can kind of take control of some of these key marketing touch points. Um, before our solution existed, 
people would have to solve that subscription management piece, um, which is a lot of engineering work. But then what would happen is they wouldn't ever invest in that marketing layer. And so then you, they'd be stuck in more dev cycles to just you know change a price point or change some marketing copy. Um, and they get bogged down in that. And nobody like you guys, I mean, nobody like NAMI was out there. Were you the, were you the first to start offering this type of service? And is there competition now? Yeah, so there, uh, so there's players kind of in that in the category of subscription management, kind of outside of the world of mobile. So there's a lot of players that you've heard okay. of. You know, the Stripes and the Recurlies and the Chargebees of the world are kind of operating in the kind of more macro world of like web and just selling, you know, SaaS software in general, mm -hmm. um, offering subscriptions for SaaS software. And then in the world of mobile, um, there there's a couple of competitors that are, um, have. Um, what I would call, you know, differing viewpoints of the market. So there's a competitor that's more really, you know, doing some of the same stuff around subscription management, but in service, for example, of an analytics tool. Um, there's some folks that are doing some of the subscription management, but in service of a data layer that can integrate with a bunch of other technologies. And so we all kind of have a little bit of a, you know, the, of the kind of two or three players, there's there's a little bit of a different viewpoint in, in what the product is. Um, and I think part of that's just because it's uh, not yet a mature space. This is These are kind of, our kinds of companies are relatively new focused on this cross-platform problem. And will it become more mature when more apps start charging the user, I guess? Is that, is that what will happen? I mean, in layman's terms, you're right. Why, why are people comfortable paying a subscription for a desktop SaaS platform but when I but when I get a notification that I got to pay for an app I'm annoyed why is that that's interesting that I that, that, that we think that way because I'm kind of the same <laughs> you know I think part of it is that it's it's how it's it's well okay I think one part of it is that mobile apps have this tendency of prompting the user right when they download and it launch it for the first time they pop up the thing that says here's the subscription and it's it's irritating because you haven't even had a chance yet to see right. if you even care about this thing. Right. And that's right. one of the things that we wanted to solve. And that's from a marketing capability is like a marketer might say, you know, don't prompt the user about the subscription until they've performed, you know, sure. these three high value actions or use some tr smart triggers so that yes. it's it's not just beating you over the head uh, with something. And so that's and, and the other thing is Apple. Um, I think this was bad advice is like Apple recommends to developers or at least did for a while that you prompt that user right away. And so that's what apps just started to do in a lazy fashion. Now, mm -hmm. Apple's perspective is, well, if the user doesn't know about the subscription, they'll never subscribe. So you have to put it in front of them so they're aware that it exists. And I think that that's a fair point, except to say that it probably shouldn't be part of your first impression. Right. Your first impression should be, is this thing even useful to me at I all? Totally, yeah, totally agree. Right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wanna, I wanna drive it first. I wanna test drive it for a little bit. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Okay, how how big is the company now? All right, it, it, regarding employee size, I know you can't share a lot of you know numbers and, and you know financials, but employees, how about that? Yeah, so six employees on the payroll um, have a handful of, of contractors as well. Um, you know, we are a cross-platform uh, solution, so we have a, a native component that goes drops into an app for Apple, a native component that drops into an Android app. Um, and then there's all these other technologies. So sometimes people build mobile apps using React Native technology or Xamarin or some of these other toolkits that are kind of abstractions over top of, of the primary native programming. And so we, have, we our SDK, our software development kit, you know, it's, it's got it. I think we have some like six or seven different flavors. And so depending on how popular those are, um, it depends on whether it's an in-house headcount or okay. whether it's just a project. And then, um, uh, and then in terms of company as well, we've raised around $2 million to date. Wow, um, congratulations, so, all right, all right. Uh, so we are you know, backed by investors and, and then Joe and myself as uh, co-founders that have had previous exits, um, it's been nice because we've also been able to be investors this time yep. uh, in our own company. <laughs> I was gonna ask if you bootstrapped it or if you've raised cash yet. Um, did, did you have non-competes on taking talent from those other companies you started, or did you go over there and, and poach from, from those? Did you pull anybody? <laughs> I'm sure we did. Um, I don't really remember, but just as a general practice, um, yeah. you know, I, 
we if somebody asked us like what are you up to we would tell them but um we weren't making a real effort to i mean we actually made zero effort in fact tried extra hard to not do that in part because um all those people we still liked and appreciated and just it didn't it wouldn't have felt right yeah any Um, of the same investors uh yeah one of the same investors Okay, very yeah. good. It shows the fact that you've kept these relationships over time and that you've made things profitable for them, so they invested in you again. Uh, so yeah. congratulations. Um, okay, what's the plan? Do you have a? Is it? Are you just having fun building it right now, or is there a secret whiteboard, you know, off camera that where it's all mapped out? Where you're like, yeah, when we get to here, we're going to sell it to Oracle or, or Oracle or whoever. I mean, is there a plan? Well, I mean, you always think about some of these things, um, but. We're, we're, we're early enough. I mean, we've been doing this for a few years. We're early enough that I think we're still trying to figure out where the market writ large is going and where we want to play in that in a bigger way. So we know where we're playing now. The question is we could, we could expand, you know, this direction, you know, or that direction or, you know, that direction, you know, there's all, or, or, you know, 3d space. Now we're expanding up, right? I don't know. But, um, so part of it is just trying to think carefully about, you know, where do we, we pulled this marketing string, for example, and we can keep pursuing the marketer persona as a key persona in our product, but what's the next persona we care about? Um, is it, you know, the the CFO? Yeah, maybe, maybe not, because there's a lot of companies in the kind of subscription back office space that are doing things like, financial reporting for Wall Street, you know, metrics for Wall Street, the Zoras of the world. So we're probably not going to go into that as an example. Um, and so that's the thing is like, we're just, we're trying to figure out where do we want to be in a year with where the product's going and, and how that maps to the market. Um, does that open up some opportunities around potential exits? I'm sure it does, but it's just, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to forecast all of that. Sometimes it's just about being putting yourself in a good position where there's opportunities that open the door. Very good. What's your favorite part, Dan? Uh, do you do you enjoy the technology the most, the, the people, the cash raising, you know, constructing the deal, the exit? Like what, what are your favorite parts as, as a CEO and as a founder? I think over the years I've come to appreciate, um, and actually, especially this time, um, because we didn't bootstrap, so we had some capital from kind of day one to start deploying, uh, is really just trying to hire and recruit the best possible people that we can find. Mm-hmm. That would be number one. And then and then seeing people kind of, um, uh, you know, step up and own big parts of what we're doing. So, for example, I mean, I took six weeks off, or not six weeks, I wish I would take six weeks off, <laughs> I took three weeks off for uh, once the kid was here. And, um, um and you know i was totally disconnected i mean i was 100 percent unplugged and it felt fantastic um and i could think of you know maybe that last company or two had there been a life event like that where i needed to be not in the business um i don't think i would have could have been able to be 100 percent removed so i think i've really learned to appreciate the fact that hey we've hired smart people for a reason it's to own big parts of what we're doing and as long as they feel empowered and kind of like they've got the support of me um, to both run their part of the business and um, um, and hopefully grow themselves uh, in this experience, um, that's what we want. So that's the part that I've come to both appreciate and sort of hope to try to foster um, and, and it's a lot of fun. If there's somebody listening to this episode that's an aspiring entrepreneur, they wanna start something, but they haven't, I mean, you could you could teach a class on it at this point uh, in Boulder because <laughs> you've done it enough. But you know, what what are just a couple of things that you would tell them if if they're nervous about getting started, haven't quite done it yet, on the edge, having beers with their with their potential co-founder down at the tavern? They talk about it all the time, but they haven't taken the leap. What would you tell them? I think you just have to do it, and that's what separates people that do it, and then have a bunch of failures or have a bunch of successes or have a mixed bag. But even like, you know, uh, it, uh, talking about the what I've done in the past now, it all sounds like it was smooth sailing. It was not smooth sailing. 
there was really stressful moments. There was moments where we were trying to figure out how to make payroll. There was moments where a client had promised something and then didn't come through. I mean, there's just all this turmoil in the process. So, but you don't tell those stories when you've had a bunch of successes. Um, uh, although the point is, is like we, all entrepreneurs have these kind of, it's, it's, it can be a lonely journey on some level um, and it can be stressful. And, but does that mean we, we trade it for a desk job working for somebody else where we don't have investment in what we're doing emotionally or intellectually? I wouldn't, you know, right. now right. over time, hopefully I've gotten better at uh, dealing with stress, dealing with being able to detach, dealing with being able to kind of elevate to more strategic than get bogged down in the tactics when I've got team members that can focus on, you know, other areas of the, you know, uh, altitudes of the business. And so you just have to do it. I mean, I remember even, even before, um, when I was thinking about, uh, 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 leaving that company, that, that first company and going to do a part-time retail job. I mean, uh, I, oh no, no, I'm, just, I'm sorry. When I was getting ready to leave Apple, by then I had been in the corporate job and you know, that time Apple stock, I was getting Apple stock regularly and great benefits. And it was just a, you know, I worked from home. It was way ahead of its time on that front. And I worked for Apple. Who wouldn't want to work for Apple? So all of that was good. And when I was thinking about leaving, I just remember um, some people that I was close to kind of saying like, well, why would you leave? That's, you've got it. You've got a great situation. And it's like, yeah, but, and if I would have just listened too much sometimes to those other voices and, and kind of muted my own inner voice that said, nah, but you got to do this because this is what, where your, where your heart is, um, then we would be having a very different conversation right now. Maybe it would have been a better conversation. It's hard to know, but, um, uh, but it would have been a very different conversation. So I just feel like people just have to go for it if you want to go for it, because you can always find excuses not to do something. Um, and maybe, maybe that's just, uh, you know, you're trying to hold yourself back. Um, so somebody yeah. recently said something about, well, it's not luck. It's about putting yourself in a position of have access to luck, right? So if you don't put yourself into a situation where you can, um, close that first deal or hire that first employee or try to raise capital. Yeah, you might fail at raising capital. It sucks. Nobody wants to do it. It's, I mean, some people must love doing it, but I don't like doing it. And, uh, <laughs> but it's, but it's also, I've grown in, in that experience. Right. Um, I've learned some things. So I just, people, if, if you, if you think, but, but here's, I want to say one more thing about this without going on too long, which is that, Right now, there's more startups than there's ever been. And I think that unlike in 2008 when I started Double Encore, you know, now the thing to do on some levels is to start a company. There's some status associated with starting a company or some celebrity, there's celebrity investors. And so if you want to start a company because you think it's cool, don't start a company. Right. Start a company because you want to work for yourself and you want to build a team and you want to build, you know, you don't, you want a different experience than working inside of a big company, not just because it's a status symbol. Really good advice. Really good advice. Last question. I know we're almost out of time, Dan. And by the way, before I ask you this last question, just uh, for the listeners, it's namiml.com, namiml.com. And you can also connect with Dan on LinkedIn, of course, Dan Burko on LinkedIn. I'm sure he will just love a bunch of bunch of messages on LinkedIn. Just joking. Um, Dan, what's your core purpose in life uh, right now? If you had to put it into a sentence, but let's um, let's separate the brand new beautiful daughter and wife just for <laughs> a second. Let, let's yeah. let's let's set that aside as like that's a pr kind of a primary core purpose, right? Beyond that. If you had to put your core purpose into a sentence, what would that be? Not to self-limit. I have Ooh. spent, you know, a good chunk of my entrepreneurial career um, somewhat feeling like an imposter, you know, imposter syndrome. Yep. And uh, yet things have happened. And, you know, there's been other opportunities that I, 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 I have closed the door on kind of by my, you know, self-limited. Um, so I'm just, that's what I've been trying to do over the last, you know, probably 
four or five years now and going forward is just to sort of like, you, sometimes you just have to ask, you know, or, or you just have to pick up the, that phone call. Oh, is that person the right fit for this? Or could they be a client? Well, I'm not sure. Ah, they probably wouldn't be the right client. Well, wait a second. Why did I just close the door and didn't give them an opportunity to say, uh, oh, wow, yeah, I'm so glad you called. I know we haven't talked in a while, but this is exactly something that uh, I want to talk to you about. So it's really hard. It requires a bit of discipline to kind of, you know, check yourself in those moments where you're like, ah, you kind of second guess an idea or a thread around something that you're trying to pursue. Um, and it's not, by the way, it's not just a business thing. I mean, I remember driving to the jujitsu gym for the first time and like being in the parking lot, not sure I wanted to even go in. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I almost turned around and went home, quite frankly. Um, and, but I didn't because I was thinking about this idea of self-limiting and it's like, well, worst case scenario is I, you know, somebody breaks my arm and yeah. I'm in a cast for a little while and I've got a great story. So, <laughs> you know, I just, that's how I try to be and I'm not always perfect at it, far from it, but, um, I, I feel like it, it really, it really helps, um, mm -hmm. especially in those tougher moments where you're not quite sure if you want to do something. Good stuff, Dan. Thank you so much, really, for being on the Rider Flex podcast and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Hey, I, I enjoyed, I always enjoy talking about myself. I know that sounds strange, but I think there are some interesting uh, stories yeah. there. And, um, you know, I when I was starting out, there weren't podcasts. So that's true. You know, it's not like it's not like we heard other people and what they were going through or struggling. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, there wasn't any of that. So I like talking about this stuff in part because if there's somebody that is like, oh yeah, I really shouldn't self-limit. I'm going to go start that thing. Um, then that's a reason to be doing it as well. If you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know, please share this with them. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button. The Rotterflex podcast features entrepreneurs, business executives, and the stories behind how they got there as well as daily tips on career advice and job interviewing. You can visit riderflex.com to learn more about us and get information and pricing on the recruiting and consulting services we provide. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.